Job has been questioning the running of God, God's running of the world, his, even his handling of time. And God has appealed, if you were with us last time we were together in the book of Job, to the inanimate world, things like the earth that he made, the oceans, the stars, light and darkness, lightning, rain, hail and snow. We even considered the thought of thought itself. In fact, how can I even think about these things? By what uh, design does my brain allow me to think deep thoughts, to ponder that the heavens do declare the glory of God? If I see a bird soaring in the air, if I see the wind moving through the trees, if I see a beautiful sunset with the uh, sky marked with all these different colors, if I consider the power of the waves, a snow-capped mountain, or the sun and the moon and the stars. Well, the fact that I can even consider those more deeply is because God gave me the ability to consider, to consider and think. And I would submit to you that we all need to do a little bit more considering of the beauty around us and the beauty that we sometimes take for granted even in one another. And as God used these uh, 77 questions that he asked Job, within the questions I mentioned last time we were together are answers. And this is going to cause us to think a little bit more deeply, but here's a little bit of review. In Job 38.11, God brought up the rain. He says, or he brought up, I'm sorry, the waves. He says, I said, thus far the sea, uh, you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop, Job 38.11. And the point there was, God told the sea, you can only go so far. He put a line in the sand, if you will. And when God brought up the sea to Job, he was saying, yes, the sea looks ominous sometimes, powerful and dark. And even in tsunamis and, and things when thing, times when things look out of control, God stops it. It can only go so far. And Job felt like he was in the washing machine. And God says, you know what? I, I put borders on the sea. It can only go so far. The sea is a picture of evil. And the Lord is saying to Job, evil has a limit. I will allow it at times for my own purposes, but it cannot cross the boundary for which I have of it. Secondly, Yahweh commands the rain in verses 25 through 28. 25 through 27 of chapter 38. And he commands the rain clouds to travel over desert, barren areas. If we had control of the weather, we would never think of these areas. We'd only probably as selfish human beings think about our part of the world or our crops or what we need. One writer says, if human beings directed the weather patterns, they would guide them for their own selfish benefit. They would preserve the precious rain solely for the cultivated land and neglect the barren step. But such an egocentric policy would upset the balance of nature and cause havoc to the cultivated lands. We talked about how with the rain, one application is that rain brings growth. But in Job's barrenness, as he asks questions about why what is happening to him is happening, here's part of what God is saying. Job, your life is going to become water and growth to barren lives that you can't even imagine. And this is going to happen not only in your generation as you are restored, but as people read your story throughout thousands of years of time, 
They're going to learn within your suffering and how you dealt with it and the questions and the answers that I am the answer to the problem of evil, that it's found in the power of the gospel. And there's even a hint in Job's suffering that there is one coming, the greater Job, who will go through his own desert experience and die uh, as the most innocent sufferer of all time and die on the cross inexplicably. And God will use that suffering to redeem the entire world and the universe. This, these are the ways of God. We don't always understand them, but here's what they are. And now God is going to take us into the world of wild animals of all things to prove his point. He's kind of gone from the inanimate uh, things like the clouds and the stars to the animate creation and namely here wild animals. And we're going to get some cameos from some different animals. It's going to be kind of cool. We'll have a few pictures for you as well. And this is about the wild animals coming across the screen. What can we learn from just a small sampling of things that God made. Well, God says to Job in 38, 39, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? I think it's interesting that God starts with the lion. The lion's supposed to be the king of the jungle. If you enjoy a little Wizard of Oz, ain't it the truth, ain't it the truth? But you know, the lion still needs to be fed, and the little lion cubs need to be fed as well. And even though the lion is the king of the jungle, he is still subservient to the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? And so, this king of the jungle comes across the screen, the first cameo to consider. Now, you may be wondering, well, why animals right now? Because God's reaching into the created world to show things about the creator. And God is moving into animal life to show if he cares for even wild animals that seem to be so distant from mankind, then he surely cares for Job that's made in the image of God. And he surely cares for Job who's an upright and good man. And many of us have questions right now. You know, the world is a crazy place. There's so much going on and we wonder, does God care for us? You know, David even said in Psalm 8, when I consider the, the heavens, the works of your fingers, the sun, the moon, and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you care for him? But David knew God's loving care. And David became a shepherd after God's own heart. And in the midst of David's turmoil, he learned to trust God. In the world of creation, in the world of animals, in the world of shepherd and sheep, in the world of even wild animals, there are lessons. And the lesson is this, that God even feeds the lion cubs. So we have before us what you could call predator and prey, the strange world of the wild animal kingdom. If you've ever watched one of those programs, one of those uh, National Geographic Programs, they can be a little hard to watch because you watch the lion on the hunt and he's kind of low in the weeds and you see that one little skittish deer off by itself drinking at the water hole and you're like, get out of the house, get out of the house. And then the lion chases that poor thing and grabs it and sadly 
kind of tears it up. And he brings it back to the lair so that the little lion cubs can eat. And God says to Job, can you do that? Well, in some ways, God has designed this fallen, cursed world with provisions. And those provisions are, interestingly enough, something has to suffer and die for other things to live. And there may be a little hint in this idea of the cross and the idea of redemptive suffering of the Savior. See, none of us would ever think, and none of us would dare, hopefully, to bring a piece of steak to the lion cubs. Even though they're cute and cuddly, uh, you might want to keep your distance, if you know what I'm saying. See, that world can be dangerous, and that is the picture here. Job, do you even think about such things? Here's what's underneath. You're questioning how I run the world. You're questioning me about times and seasons and suffering and whether or not I care. I care about things that you probably give little thought to, Job. I take care of the animals and the people. God says in Psalm 50, verse 10, verses 10 through 12, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. See, God made everything. Uh, Most recent estimates, almost 9 million forms, documented forms of plants and animals. Almost 9 million. And he cares for them all. Even the raven, the second cameo, the second uh, animal or bird that comes across the screen is the raven, the menace of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, if you're a Steeler fan, you feel me. If you're a Raven fan, I'm sorry, we'll pray for you. But anyway, who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God, would you notice in 41, and wander about without food? Who prepares their meal, Job? Now, God continues to ask Job questions so that Job can consider things. If you were with us on our last Sunday service before we went full tech on you guys, I gave you Luke 12, 22 through 32 as a passage for us to consider. And in that passage, Jesus said, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They don't store up in barns like that sad man that built bigger barns and his soul was required of him that very night. They don't sow, reap, or store in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more will he feed you? Oh, you of little faith. Consider the birds. Again, think about the word consider because that's what God is asking us to do. With each cameo of a bird or an animal, he's saying, look a little bit deeper. Your heavenly Father even cares for the ravens. Check this out. This is Psalm 147. Eight and nine. Who covers the heavens with clouds? Who provides rain for the earth? Who makes grass to grow on the mountains? He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. Psalm 147, verse nine. Now I want you to turn to Psalm 104, and this is just going to be a little bit now to your right. The Psalms are right next door, Psalm 104. I want to take you through a psalm that's going to anticipate some of the animals that we're going to see in this teaching. Psalm 104, we're going to start in verse 10. Psalm 104, verse 10. It says, 
He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. Psalm 104:11. They give drink to every beast of the field. Notice in verse 10, he sends forth springs in the valleys. You have the wild donkeys. They quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. 13, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. All of this is God. And vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he makes his, uh, may make his face glisten with oil. And food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is the fir trees, 18. The high mountains are for the wild goats. We're going to see them in a moment. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers who are chucking their rocks at people. (laughs) Do rock badgers throw rocks? Stop throwing those rocks. Anyway, I thought you might need a, maybe that's a little laugh. I don't know. Who made the moon for the seasons, 19. The sun knows the place of its setting. Thou dost appoint darkness and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. 21. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. And then, notice, man goes forth to his work. After they withdraw, man gets up and works and to his labor until evening. O Lord, notice, 24. How many are thy works and wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy possessions. Back to Job. Now you may be asking, this whole thing about wild animals, predator and prey, uh, what's up with that? Well, here's the deal. As a human, do you know that you're at the top of the food chain? Now, I know that there are some people who are vegetarians and vegans and whatever, But man is at the top of the food chain. And even though when we go to the market and we might buy something, it's been prepared by a butcher, so we don't have to deal with all of that. But the point is, is that God has made provisions for all of us. That's the larger point. God designs and God provides. This is from Ash in his commentary on Job. He says, suffering of one provides survival of another. Is it possible that in the counsel of God, this age is so ordered that suffering for some is necessary for the survival of others? Is this process of predation also a pointer to a deeper truth? Perhaps even the truth of redemptive suffering, that of Christ. That the day will come when the suffering of one innocent man will be God's means to bring life to a whole redeemed community. And he puts a question mark on it. It's something to consider. In the book of Ecclesiastes, as the writer ponders the the deep things of life, and and a lot of them are tough to deal with. They're enigmas. They're difficulty. He says, a generation, Ecclesiastes 1.4, goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises again blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full, to the place where the rivers flow. 
there they flow again. In chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes, the writer says, There's appointed, an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven, under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Some of you have experienced this. You have a loved one who passes away. And within that same time frame, a new child comes into the family. Maybe it's a child or a grandchild or a great-grandchild. And life comes and death takes another. And, and in this, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, vanity, man. <laughs> All these things are vanity because he's looking at life under the sun. He's not looking at life above the sun, if you will, from God's perspective. And this is what we need, especially in these times, but really in all times. We need to understand that our lives are not about just here and now. And trials do something important for us. They remove some of our worldliness. Because if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. And trials and suffering have a tendency to remove our worldliness. We don't, we don't uh, rely so heavily on the things of the world that are passing away, but he who does the will of the Lord abides forever. You can check out 1 John chapter, one, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. See, trials and suffering remove our worldliness. Let me ask you, and I'm asking myself during this time, do I have some worldliness that needs to go? Some things that grab my time and attention that really don't have much to do with God and his kingdom. Do you know 39.1 back in Job? Do you know the time that the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Now we have probably the Nubian ibex for the mountain goat. The third cameo is the mountain goat and then we have the deer as well. The Nubian ibex inhabit the steep, steep cliffs of the wilderness in Israel, they are present in the regions of Qumran and Gedi and Sinai. They're up on the rocks. They're beautiful creatures. And uh, they stay there on the rocky hillsides. Their light tan bodies with lighter brown stomachs blend in well, well with the rocky hillside. The male has two magnificent horns that curl backward. These graceful creatures are very shy and are endowed with a keen sense of smell. The hind or the fallow deer has similar characteristics. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now God is talking about the time that they give birth. Notice the emphasis on the time. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Can you count the months, verse 2? Do you know the time that they give birth? Their offspring become strong, verse 4, chapter 39. They grow up and move into the open field. They do not return, if you will, to their parents. Job, question from God. Do you number the time uh, of pregnancy and delivery, the time of delivery of these particular animals? Think about how many times this happens throughout the, the known world. And God says, I am is there. I am there. I care about the time I number the months of pregnancy. The language, says a couple of authors, implies that he's not just counting the months, but lovingly, compassionately caring 
about the time to deliver, the time of pregnancy and the time of delivery. Job, I care about those things and I care about you too. You see, folks, brothers and sisters, our times are in God's hands. Even this time, right now. God has not moved from his throne. This time is in his hands. You can write down Psalm 31, verse 15. My times are in your hands, O God. Even the time right now is in his hands. And you know, when you think about this idea of birth pangs and then the giving of birth, this is how life often works. Jesus used this image to describe the last days. And he described the birth pangs of a mother who's about to give birth and they, they get more intense and closer together. And then the baby's born and the mom forgets about her, her trial for the joy of the baby that's been born. And sorrow lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And here's the point of this image of the birthing and the time. God's saying, yes, you're going through a difficult time, Job, right now. Yes, we're going through a difficult time, an unprecedented time for us right now. But it's going to pass, and it's going to give birth to a new morning, a new joy, a new beginning. And that's my prayer. And when that new beginning comes, should God grant it to us, and I pray and I'm confident that he will, let us not forget this season, brethren. Don't forget what God did in your spiritual life at this moment because we forget so easily. The fourth cameo, if I'm counting right, is found in 39.5 of Job, and it's the wild donkey. Who sent out the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home. And the salt land could speak of the area of the Dead Sea for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver. He does not hear because he's not under a burden. He's free. Unlike his domesticated uh, partner, he's out in the wilderness. He's been set free. He's not under heavy burdens. And he explores the mountains for his pasture and he searches. Key words in verse 8, he explores and searches after every green thing. He frolics about, says one writer. He laughs at the commotion in town. He doesn't pay attention to the driver's shouting or commands. He's not under the heavy burdens, and Job wasn't either. Yet in his freedom, he must search. He must search for food. And here, I think the lesson is, Job, you must search for some answers, and you have been. What's the application? Well, when we're in the strange wilderness that God often puts us in, just like the children of Israel of 40 years in the desert. When we're in the wilderness, that's when we need to search for deeper answers. And the good news is that you're going to find God in the wilderness, and you're going to find answers also in the wilderness. Well, he will bring the manna and bring the water from the rock. See, the wild goat is free, and he can, he can traverse around and frolic around, but ultimately he still needs food. He needs sustenance, and so do we. And we have been such a free people of the United States. Man, we have so many incredible freedoms. We start to get petty about our little freedoms, about how long it takes to get our food in a drive through and what restaurant are we going to eat at. We have so many little things that we've made so big. 
And now we're in the desert places and we're like, Lord, I got to learn to cook a quesadilla. Quesadilla. Lessons that we can learn here. You see, if you find yourself in the wilderness, hold on. God's still on the throne. Next, the fifth cameo is the wild ox, verse 9. Will the wild ox, God asking Job the question, consent to serve you? Or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valley, valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? The wild ox, or some authors say the aurochs, is a powerful creature not subject to mankind. The bull is huge, surpassing six feet across its shoulders, with long horns pointed forward and a dark brown or black coat. Its horns combined with its brute strength make the animal very dangerous. In the book of Numbers, it says God is for Israel like the horns of the wild ox. The psalmist in Psalm 22, when uh, the Messiah is dying on the cross, it says, Psalm 22, 21, Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen, thou does answer me. This animal loves to graze in wooded areas. And it, when trying to grab it with ropes or have it plow the field, it's not what it, it, it does. It's a wild ox. It's, if you try to get in its way, it probably is going to just smash you. You need wisdom when it comes to this animal. It's not going to spend the night in your manger. If you try, lots of luck. So what's the point? Well, perhaps, can you tame the untamable, Job? There's some wild stuff out there beyond your control. <laughs> Yahweh's challenge for Job will come later to control Behemoth and Leviathan. We'll talk about those possible references even, in some cases, to dinosaurs. Do you have control issues? <laughs> I think we all could say we do. You remember when Jesus sent the disciples into the storm? He sent them into the storm and they were rowing against the wind and the waves and he waited for hours and they came to them walking on the sea. He was praying for them as they went up on the mountain watching over his brethren always with his eyes on us. And they rowed against the sea and it was hard and then Jesus came walking to them and they were afraid. Fear is a natural thing that we all go through. But Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's me. And they invited him into the boat. And they got to their destination. See there, and we have an invisible virus that's spreading around the world, spreading in our country, and we're like, Lord, I, I, some, some of you may be over the top with washing your hands and, and so, trying to be so careful. And you could almost be paralyzed by fear. But God's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so we need to lean into him. And maybe this will help you. Maybe this will give you a moment of uh, kind of a chuckle or two. The next is the ostrich. The sixth cameo is the ostrich, a strange-looking bird indeed. Some things about this life are just strange, aren't they? Paradoxical, if you will. Hard to figure out. Look at verse 13, Job 39. The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love. The ESV has it as a question. 
but they are pinions and plumage. Are they plumage? pinions and plumage of love? Easy for me to say. Has it as a question. Uh, the New King James compares it to the stork. For she abandons her eggs to the earth, 14, and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or the wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, probably when she looks for food for them, she is unconcerned because God has, perhaps you could say she has a bit of a bird brain. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Now you say, why would she, the ostrich, strange looking bird, laugh at the horse and rider? Do you know that they've clocked an ostrich running at around 43.5 miles per hour which is about as fast or faster than any racehorse ever recorded. Isn't that interesting? This weird-looking bird can outrun a racehorse and outrun, uh, by extension, any predator chasing it. Odd bird, the ostrich. And yet, uh, it lays eggs about 20 times larger than a chicken's eggs. It has the largest eyes of any land animal. <laughs> weird. It, it's... Uh, it's got a long neck, enormous bird, uh, largest feathered creature on the planet, uh, long necks, uh, it's small head, long necks, uh, skinny neck. It makes you, it does make you laugh. What's the point? What's the application of bringing the ostrich across the screen? I think this. There are many weird things in this world. Have you ever considered some of the insects of the world and why they're here? And some of the bushes and the, the things that have, uh, you know, needles. Why and what and what's going on? There's some enigmas, some paradoxes, some strange things in the world. And even viruses. Strange. I guess scientists may understand them. I don't really totally understand, but life is full of paradoxes. And... There are creatures that are hard to understand, situations even more so. But one day we will find our answers fully in Christ when we know even as we are known. One day, says one writer, a man will walk the earth with extraordinary and surprising abilities to heal, to walk on water, to raise the dead. Abilities that no one uh, would have guessed when they looked at his very ordinary appearance, Isaiah 53, 2. And yet who will end his life being treated as if he were an utter fool, says this writer. And yet, in this mysterious paradox will lie the key to the universe. This is how life is sometimes. We're going to meet, meet now the seventh animal to come across the screen. The seventh cameo is the war horse. And one writer said, you got to picture J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and the horse's and the dark riders and the Lord of the Rings to get this image as they paw at the grounding picture. Verses 19 through 25, read it with me. Do you give the horse his might? God asked Job. Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin, 24. 
With shaking and rage, he races over the ground, and he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And the, he scents the battle. He smells it from afar. And uh, it says, And thunder of the captains and the war cry. When the horn sounds, when the war cry goes forth, he comes a charging. Nahum 3, 3 says, Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming. This is the picture of this fearless animal. And notice in verse 19. He is designed by God. God gave him his might. God gave him his mane. God gave him his power. God gave him his bravery. Don't you wish at times like this you were a little bit more like the war horse? Not afraid of anything. Not fearful of what might come. Uh, drives right into war and fear, laughing at the battle. He doesn't turn back. He's not afraid. I want to be like him. I want you to turn to Psalm 20. Remember, the Psalms are just the next book to your right. Let's read this together, Psalm 20. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. This is something about the horse and the battle and what we really trust in. Psalm 20. This is a Psalm of David, and it says, verse 5. We will sing for joy over your victory. Psalm 20, verse 5. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, verse 9, O Lord. May the king answer us, the king of kings, in the day that we call. Let's pray. When the answer comes, that it will be unmistakably the glory of our God, that the world will give him glory. I want to share something from uh, Christopher Ashe's commentary on the book of Job. He says, here as the wild ox is a creature, here as the wild ox, here are dangers and the destruction experienced by Job. Perhaps the Sabians and the Chaldeans had ridden upon such war ho horses when they devastated Job's life, chapter 1, verses 15 and 17. And yet this war ho horse has a master. There is one to whom it owes its strength, its nature, and its victories. And therefore, there is one to whom it must one day give an account and who is sovereign over all its warlike acts. Job cannot hope to overcome this ultimate weapon of war. That's come against him. He must bow and entrust himself to the only one who can. The one who made the war horse, if you turn back to the book of Job. The one who made its power and its almost divine-like qualities, some might say, as it gallops along in power and majesty. God says, I made that horse, Job. I made that horse, and that horse doesn't guarantee the victory. I do. Trust in me. Trust in my power. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. Well, the eighth and final cameo is two birds of prey. They're the hawk and the eagle back in Job 39. Look at verses 26 through 30. Is it by your understanding, as God continues to question Job, that the hawk, this may be the sparrow hawk or the falcon or kestrel, soars stretching his wings toward the south? He dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there, he spies out food. He eyes 
His eyes see it from afar. His young ones, this may be a little gross, so hopefully you're not eating your popcorn right now, also suck up blood. And where the slain are, there is he. Lastly, the Lord points to two birds of prey. The hawk has a remarkable understanding that directs it to migrate south in the autumn and then spreading out its wings to return to Syria in the spring. God says, what can you really discern and understand, Job? Do you get it? Do you understand the command I give, verse 27, to the eagle when he mounts up? You know, the eagle has been a a symbol of many great uh, empires over the years, even in our own nation. And it says in Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God even uses the image. And here the main thought is the eagle spying its food from its impregnable fortress. It's made this nest so high up in the rock that nothing could ever get at it. But he has such keen eyesight and he's so fast and precise that he can see what he wants to get for food for his young ones in the nest. And he goes and he dives after it and he can eat it. Some of you have heard the story of the mother eagle who is teaching her young ones how to fly. I guess they stay in the nest uh, two to three months, eight to 12 weeks. And when they're being taught how to fly, they get dropped out in the nest and they're falling and flapping and they, they haven't learned how to fly. And just at the last second, she swoops in and rescues them and brings them back up and drops them again until they learn how to fly. Well, this is what God does in our life. And these are some kind of hard to take images, but God says, this is the world that I've made a provision for, this cursed and fallen world I still take care of. I heard a funny story about a man. It's maybe not so funny for the man, but he was uh, being chased by a bear. And uh, he was running from the bear, and it became obvious pretty quickly that he wasn't going to outrun the bear. And so the bear finally caught up to him, and he was trying to play dead. And he said, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, make this bear a Christian. Make this bear a Christian. And the bear put his paws together and said, Lord, for what I'm about to receive, I'm truly grateful. (laughs) Oh, I need some laughs right now. Anyway, well, that didn't work so well for him, but here's the major point. God has a design. And here, with amazing speed and accuracy, the eagle grabs the food, pounces, carries. The little eaglets suck up the blood. Yuck. And this, verse 27 is by God's command. The prey taken by the eagle brought back to the young for their own sustenance is God's design and command. And keep in mind, these are just a few examples of the wild world, if you will, the world of wild animals to consider. And as we consider them, you might be saying, but what's the bigger point, Pastor Michael, in this book of Job? Well, this fallen, cursed world isn't always pretty. But God has made provisions for it all. His ultimate provision will come in the brutality of his own son. His son will go to a cross in the very history in which we are embedded. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 14, just as many were astonished, they were shocked, appalled, shattered at you, My people 
So his appearance, Jesus Christ's appearance, prophesied 700 years before he would die on the cross, was so disfigured more than any man. His form more than the sons of man. When the, here's the, the language, here's the Hebrew. When people looked at Jesus dying on the cross, they said, is that even a human dying for us? The most unjust suffering perpetrated ever on mankind. The most innocent sufferer of all. The greater Job. The one for whom the book of Job begins to blaze the trail, if you will, came. And man, he did so many beautiful things, so many powerful things. And yet they, you could say we, nailed him to the cross. And they couldn't even recognize him as human. He was there naked in front of the world, dying for the world, forgiving the world, becoming the prey for the predator that God might bring us back to himself and redeem us. This is the deeper message of the book of Job. And now, Job and you and I must decide. Job will now have to decide if he will worship God in light of all he does not know or understand as evidenced just by the few examples given to, given to him by inanimate things like clouds and rain and lightning bolts and stars and the animate world, uh, namely here the world of wild animals, and just a few cameos. What do we look at? Eight? How much do you really know, my friend, about the universe? You know, and how much do you really care? You know what suffering sometimes does? I told you it reveals our worldliness. Sometimes, and I'm speaking to me, it reveals my self-centeredness. I was driving by a house today, and I won't give you all the details, but I'll just tell you there's a family going through a real tough, tough time. And I, I just found myself praying, oh, Lord God, would you, be, would you mercifully be with this family? Help me take my eyes off of myself and my worries and concerns. And would you intervene for this family that's going through this tough time? And I know many of you have been thinking that way, and it's been so refreshing. You've been calling the church office, and you've been saying, how can I help? How can I minister? And that's so wonderful and so awesome. And that's the transition we need to make from being so, you know, we have to be wise, of course, but, but being so self-absorbed to saying, oh, Lord, I, even my worship has been missing something as we, as we had in some of the content of our songs. Sometimes I can just go through the motions. I only want you, and I want to serve you, and I want to be a vessel fit for the master's use. Oh, God, help me. And you know what? I believe God will honor those kinds of prayers. Final uh, section here in Job, and this is only a preview. You could call these some transitionary, transitionary verses, but here's where we're going to get uh, our title, because I wanna, want you to see how Job responds. Then the Lord said to Job, chapter 40, verse 1, Verse 2, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job had a lot to say earlier, but notice what he does now. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, and even twice, I will add nothing more. The New Living Translation in verses 4 and 5 says, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I've said too much already. I have nothing more to say. And God just showed him eight wild animals and told him about things like the earth and the sea and the stars and the rain. And Job's already like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I'm not saying anything more to people. And even when we're asking our questions is maybe a little bit more of this and a little bit more of our ears open. Oh, God, what are you saying? Oh, God, what do you want to do? If you've been far from the Lord, oh, God, bring, I, I want to come back. I'm coming back to you right now. I'm not going to wait another moment. I'm sorry that I had to wait for a time when the world's in crisis to get serious about my relationship, but you're so good that I know you'll accept me anyway because you're the God of the days of sunshine and the God of the days of the storm. Job is overwhelmed by God's majesty. The man had, who had so much to say now is keenly aware of his smallness before the grandeur of God, and he must be silent. He wondered early in the book and throughout the book about how God runs the universe and time and things and days of suffering and problems. But now he's saying, Lord, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to listen. You know, we have very real problems in today's world. Many of us are hurting, confused, and even afraid. But God is good, and he's with us. Don't be afraid. He will gladly give you the kingdom, little flock. I'm grateful for um, this wonderful congregation, and anyone who's joined us uh, tonight or will join us later as they watch this on, on YouTube. I'm, I'm very grateful for your word, for the insights that you give us. Whatever's been from you tonight, let people hold on to it. Whatever's not valuable to them, let them quickly forget it. I pray that you be glorified in how we respond to this message. I pray that those who don't know you tonight or, or who are prodigals would run to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus Christ prayed, if it's you, save me from my sin. I repent and I put my trust in you. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Save me and make me your child in Jesus' name. If you're a prodigal, just say, Father, I'm coming home to stay. And I want to be usable for you in the months, the weeks and months and years ahead. I want my life to belong to you, oh, oh God. Father, thank you that in the days when we don't understand everything, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I pray your light would move into every life, every household represented tonight. May your Shekinah, may the glory, the beauty of who you are, the majesty of your brilliance, the glory of your countenance, lift our heads and bring us joy and peace that comes from you and you alone. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said.